have a dream that all men are created equal. story. I'm your host Ian Kath. This is episode 40. It's only a couple days and the next content you'll be getting from me will be from Buenos Aires. I'm going to be over there doing a little bit of the tango shuffle thing that I like to do and I'm going to be digging into the culture, see who I can find, see what other stories I can bring you about Argentina and all those things South American. I don't know, don't know who we're going to find but it's going to be a bit of an adventure. I'm going to be generating an email mailing list and if you'd like to be on that if you haven't received one soon or shortly, uh, send me a email at chat at yourstorypodcast.com and I'll make sure that you're on the email mailing list. Of course, the site is yourstorypodcast.com, but you know that by now, don't you? Love to hear from you. Facebook fan page. Remember I mentioned a couple episodes ago that we've got one of those now? Well, you can pop on over there and see what's happening as well and share a few things. I might try and put a few little videos up as I manage to get around the place. Sharing's important. I don't know if you realise how important that is, especially in this world of Internet 2.0. If you can share the content around, if you can tell everybody about stuff that's interesting, it helps to grow not only my podcast, but some of this really cool information that people are giving me and when we sit down and talk. It's information that I think is valid to the greater society. And if you think there's somebody out there who could learn from one of these stories, please burn them a CD or send them an email to the link to the site so they can go and check it out it's all about i suppose in a way entertainment and education if you happen to have an ipod touch or an iphone the new operating system actually has a function while you're listening to the podcast you can actually click on send an email and it will generate an email with the itunes directory address of the podcast automatically in it and you can punch that out to somebody and they can then go and listen to the show so if you feel inspired while you're listening to one of these episodes and you're using one of those units just send them an email and that'll help to spread the word a bit and this way we can generate a bit more buzz about the show that we're doing here over on the site of course you can get the itunes and the feeds links all that sort of stuff and today's Music is not from the usual crowd, it's from Mevio.com. I actually went over to Mevio and found this particular track because I wanted something very specific and I was having a great deal of difficulty actually finding something. So I found this little bit of music which I think is a little bit more relevant to the subject matter today. And today's show is an absolute corker. I'm so very pleased to bring you this one. We know that there are people out there 
And we know that their life is not standard. Maybe they're not even part of what we call polite society. It's something that's tolerated, but it's in the background. It's something that we don't see as an obvious part of our everyday life, but we know it's there. We wonder what it's like. How do they live their lives? How do they deal with these issues? And how do they survive, particularly emotionally? We wonder what it would be like if we could do it. Maybe we couldn't, but we wonder. The sex industry is like that. What really goes on? Who works in it? Who uses it? Is it as grubby as we're told? Why does it even exist? We all have our opinions about these things, but frankly, are our opinions valid? Do we actually know for sure? Today we talked with somebody who we could ask. Today we talked to Grace. And I'm sure that there will be something in today's episode that will cause you to think, contemplate, or maybe even change your opinion. She shares with us a lot of fascinating stuff, stuff that I had no idea about, stuff that I was in awe of when she shared with us, and I have to thank her so much for coming on the show and sharing this with us. I warn you, this is very adult and mature content, but I'd rather she tells you the rest. Here's Grace's story. You can make a sunny day and you melt the ice away. Twenty first of June two thousand nine. Yeah. Hello, Grace. Hello, Ian. How are you? I'm very well. Yeah. Welcome to your story. We're going to talk about a subject that I know nothing, 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 nothing about, and I don't think a lot of I think a lot of people do, but I think there are many people who also know nothing about mm-hmm. it because they've never mixed in the world yep. in one way or another. Yep. I want you to tell me your story, and it's an interesting story because you're only twenty one. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. But this adventure, well, this part of the adventure that we're going to get into starts when you were about 17, yep. you told me the other day on the yep. phone. So how did it all start? Um, and what what was the industry that you were in? I was in the sex industry. I've been a stripper. I've been a sex worker. Can you, okay, before we go too any further, mm-hmm. much further, what do you find a sex worker as? Uh, well, sex work is quite, actually quite a loose term. It is, used, isn't it? It is very much. Um, and it can mean many things. Many, many things. As, as I was a prostitute. A whore. Yeah, there's very okay. different. A prostitute. A prostitute. A um, more politically correct term for it is sex work. That sort of tends to cover them from dominatrices through to prostitutes, through to generalist well, escorts, to massage parlour girls, through to, you know, anything and everything. So, okay. But yes, I was a prostitute. Okay. Um, I started when I was 17. So the question is, how did you get into it, especially um, at such a young age? Yeah, I know, it's, it's, it actually sounds really bad when you say it like that. Um, the guy was very fortunate, I had a brilliant family. I was raised in quite an upper-class family. I had the greatest education, I had a Christian environment, I, everything was given to me. I was just always a very sexual person. I remember from being quite young, I was always very hypersexual. And I was always very... Can I ask you what age you had sex at? Uh, yeah. It was at, I think, oh my God, I can't even remember actually, 14, I think, 14 okay. or 15. So I was always extremely hypersexual, but I was also very rebellious. I was always just naturally one of those. And I went through the whole thing of wagging school and, you know, pretend shoplifting and drinking and smoking pot and all that sort of stuff as well as you grow up through the teenage years. And I, it just, for me, um, it sort of seemed like the last frontier of rebelliousness. It was the most taboo thing that I could think of that I could do to rebel, pretty much. So did you actually go, wake up one day and go, oh... I think I'm going to do no, this. No, not really. I I was I left school early, got a high scholarship, um, a quite a prestigious school, and basically I just decided that I liked having fun and being a little bit more rebellious than I did studying. So I 
decision was made that I um, got a job as a project support officer uh, for a private company. And basically, I was doing that, and I was sort of associating people a lot older than what I was. So it was, I was already quite mature for my age. And basically, I just, you know, you look on porn, you look on adult matchmaking sites, and I was always already linked into them at 16, which probably wasn't legal and probably wasn't the greatest thing, but I was already finding what flows my boat then, and it just seemed... So you were putting yourself up to, for... Yeah, to I was, earn, I was, earn a bit of income out of these sites? No, 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 no. I was literally just... I had a, liked women and I also liked men, so I was off-soliciting couples at 16 or 17. They had no idea that I was actually 16. But, right. Did you follow um, through at that stage? Yes, I did. So... Um, and then I decided that I wanted to move out of home. Obviously, my parents had no idea of you know my little bit of a double life, and I decided that basically it just it just seemed interesting. It seemed absolutely fascinating to me the whole industry, what was there, what was happening behind it. Um, so just just to back up a little bit, did you have boyfriends at this stage? Yes, I did. I was sort of I was I just just normal. You know, you have your temporary boyfriends that aren't really. You know, you're young, you're growing up, you have a passion, you have yeah. a party, you have your boyfriends and whatnot. That, that, so they were sexual as well? Uh, yes. Yes. No, to be perfectly honest, I didn't really have a lot of sexual experience before I actually went into the industry. A lot of it actually happened after I went into the industry. I actually don't really have hugely strong memories I, off the top of my head. I think just the amount of experience I've had since then and working, it all sort of... I forget a lot. Okay. I have it's a bit like you know I don't really keep notes on my bedpost anymore or you know <laughs> notes in my little black book. So it's just all sort of blurred into one sort of thing. But so basically, I was also writing. I love writing, um, and I was actually writing stuff about a prostitute. It just fascinated me, and I thought you know you know being young, idealistic, and you know wanting to be all artistic. I thought oh you know you can't write about something you have no understanding of, and it just became this almost like an obsession that something I really wanted to do. That would make no sense to anybody else except for me. But and so I did. I rang around and I found I was living in South Australia at the time and I rang around and I found a brothel. And I remember going in on my lunch break at work and I remember being so shit scared. I was absolutely shaking. I walked in and this old woman answered the door and she looked literally looked like she'd probably had about twenty thousand clients in her lifetime. So she opened the door. I came inside and I just the smell hit me. And I don't know if anyone's ever been to a brothel that's listening. But there is some distinctive smell of air fresh that never goes away. It doesn't matter what broccoli you visit in the world, it just, it's cloying. It sticks in the air and it just, from being hit, then I'm walking inside. It was de- decorated very much like an old, tried to be like an old French bordello with, you know, four-poster beds and, you know, the old Rubenesque uh, paintings on the wall of people copulating and all that stuff as well. So walked inside, she sort of looked me up and down and said, oh, so you're in working? And I said, yes. And she said, well, what are you you know, how old are you? And I said, oh, I'm 18. And I made a fake ID from a friend that I, you know, got for clubs and nightclubs. And she said, oh, okay, have you ever worked before? And I said, no. And she goes, okay, that's, you know, that's fantastic. You know, as you know now, in the fresh industry, it's fresh meat. Everyone's excited, you know, especially if you're young and you're pretty. And she said, all right, well, I'll just show you around the room. This is, this is where we work. And this is the rates we charge. And you get half. And, you know, the house supplies all the condoms and lube and, you know, these are our shift times, and they usually have a night shift, which is probably depending on the state. It's usually between about midnight till 9 a.m., then 9 a.m. till 1 p.m., and 1 p.m. till 9, sorry, 1 p.m. till, hang on, 5 p.m. till 1. So it's an eight-hour shift. They said we have about three to 24-hour period. I think it was two 12-hour shifts, if I can remember, from South Australia. And quick note, the, the industry is illegal in South Australia. No, it's I, illegal. It is illegal. Um, I say illegal, but it's tolerated. Vice Squad comes around every month, does their random raids, Checks everyone's overage, 
um, not taking drugs, usually everything's clean, everything's fine. They pretty much just leave it alone. You know, it's been happening since the dawn of time, mm. as everyone it's, probably knows. It's tolerated. So as long as it's not near a school, you're not harming anybody. You don't have young underage girls or it's obviously not a situation women have been trafficked in, then it's it's tolerated. So basically went through and she was chatting to me. I remember her saying to me, and I know this sounds terrible and probably wasn't the greatest place to work at the time, but she said, oh, I remember having this girl come in and she bent over and a syringe fell out of the top and I said, oh, she goes, you don't do drugs, do you? I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm clean. She goes, oh, that's great. She goes, because there will be a lot of heroin addicts through here and we don't really want them in the place. And I said, that's fine. So we answered the interview. It was very short and brief and it was pretty much just a tour and, you know, is this something you could do? And and she said, when do you want to start work? And I remember thinking, oh, crap. And I remember thinking, you know, at that time um, I hadn't moved out of home. And I remember thinking, oh, you know, when can I do the shift? And I said, all right, can I work this Saturday night? And she said, yeah, of course you can. I'll put you down on the roster and see how you go and come inside. So I, I went there on Saturday night and I didn't. I said, well, what do I wear? You know, you don't know what to wear. And she said, oh, I'll just wear something sexy, which is, you know, quite a broad term. You know, most people find their girlfriend in track pants sexy, so you don't quite know what to wear. <laughs> so I had this pair of really high heels, this little black dress, and I think, oh, well, this is, this is going to have to do. And so I went there and I was absolutely shaking in the cab. I was so nervous. And I'd, it was just, for me, I really hadn't had a lot of sexual experience. You know, you're, you're rough, you know, young, fumbling under the bed or um, bits and pieces. So I walked in and and I said, all right, come in. Here's the girls' room. You know, the girls' room usually is a room at the back where pretty much when you're not on a booking, you're not on a job, you're sitting, you're smoking, you're watching TV, you're eating you're doing your uni work, you know, it's just passing the time, basically, in your shift. So, and she said, all right, well, basically what happens is we have an introductory process where a gentleman comes in, we take turns introing, it's a little term, introing to the gentleman, you say hello, you introduce yourself, you say your name, um, and then you walk out and the gentleman chooses, the receptionist either asks him what he would like, or the last girl standing says, you know, what girl would you like to see? He chooses a lady, you go upstairs, you discuss with him, um, the general rates, which and most um, rates just include a basic massage, blowjob and sex. Um, depending on the state, but usually things like kissing, fingering, um, touching anal, you know, toy shows, fantasies, you know, pretty much anything and everything is an extra. So you charge extra money on top of the flat rate, which all goes into your pocket. Hence, you know, the girls love doing extras just because, you know, we make more money in extras than so we can. So 50% split on the standard 50% split three. in the house, yes. Right. So basically, I remember thinking then, and a few gentlemen came in, and there's one quite old gentleman, and I introduced, and I thought, I was going, oh shit, he doesn't pick me. And he didn't, he bespeaked um, another lady, and then another gentleman came in, and I remember really quite vividly, and he came in, and I was the last thing I asked me, who would you like to pick? And he said, oh, I'll pick you, you know, for half an hour. And I was just like a deer in the headlights. I was just like, oh crap, what do I do? And there was very much in part that I had this sort of thing in my head that, you know, you'd come into the industry and they'd take you into, uh, they would take you into a room and and the girls would sort of gather around you and they would go, you know, this is the secrets of the sex industry and this is what you do and this is where you touch a man and this is how you behave and this is how you, you go through a booking and what your structure of it. They didn't. They basically told you, this is your room, this is the towels you've got to use, here's some clean towels, here's some lube, here's a condom, off you go, I'll see you in half an hour. So I had no idea, and I'm just... <laughs> and let it, let it go by nature. Let it go by, literally, and they they tell you nothing, and it's kind of like, I was thinking, oh, well, what do I do now? And I had absolutely no idea, and I walked into this room, and he was waiting, and, and a poor guy 
one. His name was John. So I sort of sort of found the irony in that. And he was so nervous. And I said to him, oh, well, what do you want to do? I didn't know what to do. I didn't know I should get naked or was I to touch him first or what was meant to happen. And he was so incredibly nervous. And... So, was, so it, was, was, I. was it his first time by any It was sense? his first time. And I asked him, and I, he said, This is my first time for a brothel. And I said, Are you serious? This is my first time working in a brothel. So we sort of relaxed a little bit then. And then so we said, Well, what do we do? And he goes, Well, do we just hug or do you get naked first? And it was quite weird. It was even worse than, you know, being 14 the first time you were with your boyfriend in the room. So I thought, All right, I'll get naked first. And we sort of started touching and kissing. And I said, Oh, and I said, and I suddenly, I just suddenly realised I'd never put a condom on in my entire life. And they hadn't showed me, and um, I had never, um, I had never, yeah, honestly. And I said, and I thought, oh shit, what do I do? How do I put it on? I said, all right, you just put it on and get it up. And that poor guy was so nervous, he couldn't even get it up anyway. So we're fiddling around for half an hour, absolutely just crapping ourselves. And it got to the point where the buzzer rang, so they buzz you out for the booking and then kick you and you know kick the guy out and you know next one comes and it got to the point where we hadn't even kissed we hadn't even had sex we hadn't even really done anything and the and the guy just literally picked up his clothes and just bolted out the room and i walked downstairs and i was thinking oh god i've been living like this but you know the nights of war on and you know you just sort of i don't know you you improvise i guess you sort of make do and i guess i worked there probably for about eight or nine months. Um, so how long did it take you to learn the skills of the craft? It's not... I don't think it's a skills for craft. I think it's like anyone. I think it's, it's very much a thing we're learning to be very comfortable in your own body. And I think whilst it sounds quite wrong that I worked that early, um, it wasn't that I was pressure to There was no drugs. There was no pimps. There was no bad past. Or It was... And I think for some reason that... Because I didn't have that, that was actually my saving grace because I had a very idealistic view of the industry on how it should run, on how who I was as a person and where a lot of the women were working there were quite cold or had you know, quite long and quite sad stories to tell when he got started chatting to them. There was a genuine... There was... An, there wasn't in some ways very much naivety and innocence about me and which made me a lot of money to the point where people would say that it was eroded because of the industry is probably false. Um, Your naivety has been eroded because of the industry? No, it's, you know what, it hasn't. And I, there's, a very, there's a distinction I've learned between naivety and innocence and idolism. And I think sometimes when you, you look at children, you look at young people and you look at them, you sort of mistake their innocence for idolism. Um, and I don't know... Okay, about it. Like I've learned that your innocence will pass. It's just life. You grow up, you experience things, and there is there's always so much to learn in life. But there is, I guess, less and less innocence in a sense. You're more understanding of what people are capable of doing. But from a perspective, you know, your that idealism can be eroded very quickly. And a lot of people, when they get older, they have the same job, they do the certain things, they lose all that hope in life or the belief that things can change, things can get better, or that there is either that magic in the world or that they are capable of certain things. And that is something that I find is eroded by the people in your life. People tend, you know, they always will put you down or say certain things. But I learned very on that that was something I could keep. That was something that was very much mine personally and that I had to protect and preserve. But innocence, you know, at the end of the day, it was going to go at some stage or another. And I think for me, that distinction between innocence and idealism very much kept me sane in the sense that I could still very much be a young person, you know, in a very old, very adult, it is an adult industry, but a very adult industry, 
but still very much keep my sense of self and sense of spirit and sense of youth in a sense. And, you know, you watch a lot of the women come through the industry and it does erode at that idealism. It erodes that hope. It erodes a lot of their... Do a lot um, of people come into the industry with the hope that they'll be able to make a better life? Yeah, oh, tremendously. And, you know... Do some of them come in out of desperation? Yes. Um, there's look, stereotypes for a reason. There are the drug addicts. There are the people that have very dysfunctional lives and are doing it out of an act of sexual dysfunction. But the fact that the industry is not legalised in a lot of places only exacerbates the problem. There are some amazingly beautiful and amazing courageous women that... Purely for the fact, you know, they have a young family, you know, they may be single mothers, you know, they've got three or four kids, and they think, well, you know, I want the best for my children, so I'm going to go to work, I'm going to do what I have to do to make this extra money and give my family, my children, the best life that they can have. And I think that's very admirable. I mean, I know, you know, for them it's it can be very heartbreaking and very conflicting for them because their children obviously don't, won't, don't really want to or can't know, but they can't tell their family or their friends. And I think that's the biggest, I think mental issue with a lot of women is that isolation from society and isolation from their friends and their family because the fact that it's still very much criminalised and even when it's legalised for example even in Brisbane or Queensland there's still very much a cultural social judgement mm. um, on the industry in general on Well you don't let everybody know do you? No I don't I, I was very open when I started my family know all my friends know and quite a few people I've just met randomly and chatted about my life story know um, I have been very open in my life, and the only, only reason now I'm even still secretive in a sense is because what I've done in my life is not a byproduct of what my family's values or my family's life. And so, the last thing I would want to do, because I love them tremendously and they've given me such incredible amount of support and love for me, even through everything I've been through, is why would I want to put them in a vulnerable position where, you know, my father, people at work go, oh, yeah, your daughter was a hooker. You know, why would I want to put him in that position? I love and I respect him so much and he's done so much for him. It's, you know, for me personally, I'm very happy to be open, but for them, you know, it's not, it wasn't their choice. It wasn't their decision and it was nothing um, that they advocated. So why should I let them reap the consequences in their sure, life for what sure. I've done? So, How did your mum and dad find out? Um, she said, are you a prostitute? And I said, no, I'm a drug dealer, which sounds really bad in retrospect, but I don't think I could think of really quickly. Did you say that seriously? I said that. I said, look, I've been, you know, I'm getting a few ecstasy pills, and, you know, you deal them off every now and then, a few, a couple of friends, and she goes, I don't believe you. And Dad did, because he wanted to believe that I was a drug dealer, probably more than I was a prostitute. And then she kept haggling me and haggling me, and she goes, I know what you're doing. I know you're working. And... I said, okay, I'm a prostitute. It's what I've been doing. And first time I ever saw my father cry, which was really hard for me. Um, as you always know, your parents get angry and smash things and yell at you, but it's a disappointment that always gets at you as a child. And first time I ever saw him cry. And that was really hard for me too because that was very much for him the last frontier of my innocence. You know, for him, that was gone. You know, and especially... He's where where his second lot of children as well. So he's probably I think about forty years old. Maybe about forty, forty two when I was born. So for him, being quite old and quite wise too, and very much you know he grew up in that very much. Costume was very illegal and very much you know scum of the earth and and travelled a lot through Asia and that and seen all the trafficking, sex trade through there and. I think all the good thing was, was, you know, me in a dirty dungeon, you know. That really shook him up. That really 
was very difficult. But to give them both credit, um, they said, look, we cannot advocate what you do in your life, but at the end of the day, we still love you a lot and we'll be there to support you. No matter what. And to them, I give them a tremendous you know, round of applause for their courage. And What's their reaction now that you're no longer... Um, Oh, relief, obviously. You know, there's always that level of danger, especially if you're escorting, you're doing out calls. You know, you don't really know where you're going, who you turn up, you know. You're in someone else's house, an environment you're not really sure of. Whereas in brothels, you pay half your money because of the safety. You pay for the advertising, which, you know, sometimes can actually work out quite well. And you, you can go to work, you can leave. Whereas with, if you work privately or you're escorting, you know, you've got a phone, you've got to pay for advertising, you've got to pay for everything, you've got to find a place. <laughs> and... You know, at the end of the day, it's only like running your own business. You know, it's a 24-hour-a-day job. So your parents have accepted you, but they're glad that you're out. Yeah, of it. I think the biggest thing for them, though, was especially as growing up, I was always, I was always, I was winning scholarships. I was a very intelligent, you know, young woman, and I was always very academically very intelligent. Um, so for them, it was very hard for them to, I guess, understand where very much self-blame thing to where had they gone wrong? What had they done wrong? What did they exposed me to was it they'd given me the internet too early was i you know looking up porn at 14 was that you know i locked in a room you know my own computer That's was right. that you know and it's very much that blame thing as i guess all parents do you know what did we do wrong what they didn't do anything wrong it was just very much it's my nature i'm very inquisitive i'm very intelligent and i'm also a very naturally sexual person so for me it it was a journey it was you know an adventure it was mm. you know the last frontier but for them you know, it was, you know, what have we done wrong? We failed her, have not provided enough, so. Yeah. What's the lifestyle like? You just described that, yep. you know, you sort of spent a few months sort mm-hmm. of getting into the ropes yeah, of down yeah. Adelaide. Mm-hmm. How long did you stay in Adelaide? Look, for? I stayed in Adelaide. Um, I've been sort of working on and off for, well, I haven't worked now for about one and a half years since I met my, uh, my ex-boyfriend, but probably I was on and off for about three years. Um, I started off, I did a... Probably for, I worked for about 12 months. The lifestyle is fantastic. Look, I was young. I was 18. I was earning... So what's good about the lifestyle? I was earning between two and $4,000 in cash a week. So Sorry, say that again. Two and $4,000 in cash a week, which to anyone is a lot of money, yeah. you know. Especially when you're 18, you want to buy the, the nicest clothes. Mm. You know, you can go to a salon. You can go out drinking or partying. And, and that's what it was. It was such a flexible lifestyle. You know, I could work two nights a week, and if I worked hard, I'd make, a, you know, two and a half grand a week in cash. I didn't have to work for the rest of five days. I could drink, I could party, I could shop, I could relax. It was a very hedonistic lifestyle. It, so it, it's a good lifestyle because you get great income. Yes. And it's got good working yeah. hours mm-hmm. that you can actually decide. Yeah. What about the rest of it? You know, what about meeting all the people? Look, I love it. I, 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 oh, I still miss it. I still miss it a lot. What do you miss? Um, I miss... It's, it's really hard to explain. Um, there's, I miss the interaction with people, and sometimes sometimes it's bad. Like like I said, everyone like you know you have you know everyone, every job you have people you don't like working with or pe- clients you absolutely hate that are complete assholes that drive them up the wall. Imagine going to work, you've got those clients, and you actually have to get naked and then fuck them. Like it's a, you know, and you there's that degree of dealing with people and that lack of fear that you develop. You just you know you learn to accept everyone who they are. But I miss. I miss the sex. I do. I did. You know, there's times where nothing worse in the world that you want to do except go to what you can't be standing to be touched by another person. Other times where you're literally climbing up the walls. You're that, you know, horny, literally. You're just, because I think you're so sexually stimulated so constantly, you know, when you drop off from that, it's, you kind of don't realise the intensity in which you're living your life. It's, 
So it's not just dry sex. No, you know, there, it's not. There is Look, it, it, it's, arousal. It, it's, yeah, it's no different to, you know, you go out to a bar, you meet someone you don't really click with, you're a little bit drunk, you go home and then you probably should have done it because it didn't really work that well. Same thing with work. You, you're going to have a table that comes in white and you just go, holy shit, isn't he incredibly good looking? I can't believe I'm actually getting paid to fuck this person. Whereas secondly, then you get people, you go, oh God, I... I'm really going to have to, you know, do my shopping list in my head. <laughs> and it's struggle. And there's, you got your two, but, you know, there's a point where if you switch off too much, if you become too cold and callous, you know, you're putting yourself in a position where you're getting nothing back from what you're doing apart from material gain. And that can be very soul destroying. That's where a lot of the soul destructive stuff comes from. A lot of women that stay here for too long because they learn to shut themselves off too much to the point where. Money becomes their only reason for working. And, you know, when you're giving such a large part of yourself and yourself emotionally, mentally and physically to somebody on a continual basis or lots of people on a continual basis, you're going to end up dry, you end up drained and dry. And so I think there's that balance between, you know, you have to genuinely care. You have to have a natural, I think, to ultimately bring to what you do and make the most money. And there's women there that make thousands of dollars an hour because they're that brilliant at it. They generally go to work and are so excited and have such a, a huge amount of compassion for people they meet, a huge amount of empathy, a huge amount of love for the pleasure they give. And it's an incredibly rewarding job. And there's times where I wouldn't have traded my job for anything else than well. You know, I come back to normal, I'm working in the office at nine to five and doing a good career and I'm doing very well for myself. And I sometimes think there was more meaning and more intimacy and more validation in some ways than what I used to do than. Can you believe that some people would be really surprised by that? Yeah, I can, because I think, you know, you. I think people forget that because it, yeah, it's, yes, there's people, there's a very big misunderstanding on the people that do visit prostitutes, the people that do, people are actually prostitutes, you know. It, it's, I've, I've had a lot of people say to me, and I've had one guy, and it's, it's the biggest thing I've learned with this that it's this level of judgment. I've chatted to a lot of people, and they've said, you know, I don't have any judgments in the industry. I think it's great. I think it's, you know, do what you want, live your own life, good on you, you're strong, no, 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 you know, all the usual cliche sort of things. You know, I don't have a problem with it. I'll let it exist in our society. And then you say to them, well, but would you let your daughter do it? Would you let your mother or your sister? Or, And they go, well, no. And I said, but if you truly accepted something, wouldn't you encourage it? Not encourage, but... You know, if your daughter or your any females in your life decided to take this industry up, you know, why wouldn't you be accepting? And there's that very much, you know, it's like that old thing, you know, in the 60s, you know, I think black people are great, but I wouldn't let my daughter marry one, you know. Mm. It's it's very much that that close hypocrisy, you know, I don't know the words, that exists. But people who visit us or, you know, it's all right. This is the drunken blokes Sunday night out and give a bucks pie, they want to come back, get a root. It's all well and good, you know. They're your usual, you know, Saturday night. 3 a.m. in the morning sort of clients. and But the majority, the actual substance of the industry is, you know, married men, people that are single unattached, people that are in relationships. Um, you know, you suddenly realise a huge amount of sexual dysfunction that actually exists in society that's derivatives of religion, just even people's backgrounds from, you know, you have a lot of people come in there in tears because their wife has ovarian cancer or it's a lot of, like, you know, health issues that literally can't have sex anymore, you know. And What's, What stories have you heard over the years? Yeah, you know, you've got the sad ones, like, you know, my wife has gone through this, you know, she's gone through cancer and ovarian cancer and, 
you know, um, cervical cancer and she can't have sex anymore. And, you know, and is, is sometimes the wife encouraging of him? No, to- I mean, they don't know. And literally the husband is in tears because it's the last thing he wants to do is see someone else. But seeing the point where, you know, he doesn't want to see, you know, it, for him, you know, and for us it's very cut and dry. You come, you see us, you leave. I don't think about you when you've left, you know. I'm thinking about me a little bit, you know, if it's completely memorable, then maybe I may think of you a few more times. But it's more in a caring way. And whereas, you know, I would rather even my partner or my husband, if he was going to cheat on me, to go see a prostitute because, you know, people, they go to the swingers or they go to um, have affairs with friends or family or random people. And you can't help it. It doesn't, you know, you can try and hide your emotions for as long as you can, but there still will be that degree of intimacy or degree of emotional attachment that will develop. It's a we're humans. That's what happens. You know? We do it. Do people, do men sometimes develop an emotional attachment oh, yeah. to the girl? Yes, a lot. Um, you get a lot of them where it's obsessive. Um, and I've heard, you know, clients that bring engagement rings into girls and, you know, bring them so many gifts and, you know, try and stalk them and they're to the point where, you know, they... You know, and there's very much that rescuer. There's that thing where the men want to rescue the girls or we think we're vulnerable or we're being used or abused and there's that need to be, which I can understand because, you know, very often do men get to be heroes anymore in this society. Um, you know, you can't just go blazing into war and rescue the girl from a wild beast. It's it's more, but it isn't that it comes up where they want to rescue, they want to save you. Um, they want to... They care about you because, but they feel it's fantasy. We are, in some ways, very much the perfect woman. We are very sexually open. We're very sexually available. We're very sexually comfortable within ourselves on just trying new things in understanding. Even if it means we don't necessarily like them, you know, we're happy to explore our boundaries and who we are. Very emotionally open in some ways, um, even though we're very closed off because, you know, we can't get attached to everyone we meet and, you know, Letting somebody, you need your own space and your own, you know, spirit, I guess, to stay yourself. But in some ways, you know, we are non-judgmental. You know, anything you've done, you know, it's we accept it. We are very much, in some ways, naked psychologists. We're just <laughs> what you know, a we, great term. It is, but we are we we become confidence. You know, there's that there's that strange there's that sexual thing where you guys, you know, you have to give your real name. We don't give our real name. They're in this room and it's sort of this suspension of reality, this suspension of time. And, you know, it's very much that fantasy thing in the same sense that, you know, you know in maybe it was eyes, we're the lowest of the low. You know, what? how can we judge you if you think that we're this high? And there's that incredible honesty, you know, and, and there's that intimacy. You know, I don't know if you've ever had, you've obviously had sex with somebody, but, um, you know, after, after sex too, where it's, you know, everyone's sated, everyone's quiet, and there's that need for some people to talk. Um, and a lot of people are very lonely. They don't have the person to talk to. So, you know, you know, there's broken lives and there's their mistakes. And in some ways, you know, they find not their redemption, but, you know, there's, they've got that anonymity around them. So they've got that more opportunity to be open and honest. And some lie, some probably could make the shit up just for kicks. But, you know, more often than not, you know, there's there's that tapping in, I guess, to a cultural culture cultural current um which i miss which i miss for some strange reason it felt like you were connected to the city or even humanity as a whole on quite a constant basis because you were indulged in people's private lives in such a regular you know occurrence that 
it's sort of like you can almost predict what was going to happen where, you know, you, you suddenly noticed a huge trend and everyone was quite low. And it was quite interesting, just even if you match the seasons or the moon, listening to people's stories and the different levels, um, we're all... So you can, you can see society's emotions. You can see society flow. It's yeah. really interesting. Wow. And people's stories and currents. And you get that really rare opportunity to be very open and honest with people, which... You know, you go back into normal life or normal society, operate how you're supposed to operate. Then, How much do you have to protect yourself? Did you get emotionally involved with any of the clients? I grew fond of them. I, I had very... I developed quite close friendships with them in an emotional Did they way. ever go outside of the the brothel? Oh, yeah. Look, I, I did escort as well in Adelaide. I worked for another agency that we also did out calls to places. And I remember, I still actually remember my 18th birthday... Um, and I was a regular client of mine's, and he was a quite a big property developer. And we're in his penthouse on, on the water, on the beach, and um, massive cocaine addict. And so we'd go around. I remember that was one thing. Like, it was always good fun with him. You know, you always have copious amounts of cocaine to go over there. I remember it's my birthday, and he got told ahead that, you know, my birthday. So he brought me, you know, he all knew this... that you were about to have no, your No, not my 18th, but oh, okay. he just used my birthday in general. And he, he brought me some bottles of Molly, and we had lots of cocaine, and we're sitting out there in the water. and went out on his yacht and, you know, just cracking the bottle over the deck and having lots of champagne. And I don't really think it was bizarre, you know. It, it was very much one of those rare birthday. And it was lovely. We had a, we had a great time, obviously. We, you know, put on cocaine and champagne and everything was great. But it was seeing God, I don't think people have these 18th birthdays are quite like this. But, <laughs> no. Um, no. <laughs> but it's, that's what I meant. And that's where, you know, you have to be very... For me as a young person too, I've dealt with a lot of very powerful and very interesting men, have incredible stories and incredible careers uh, and have incredible amounts of success in their lives. From all ages, from sort of music through to you know, construction, through to property, through to law, through all these different areas. And there's that underwhelming, underwhelming, I sort of, um, they're overwhelming in the same way, not a human sadness, but you realise, you know, they get to the top of what they want to do and they're still sad and lonely people and it doesn't quite... Which is very... Um, That's why they reach out to people like you. Which is why they reach out. But also, you know, for, for me, somebody that goes, you know, what do I want to do with my life now? You know, I've got incredible intelligence. I've got a lot of skills um, to move forward. But then I go, you know, I meet all these people that are at the top of their game in all these different areas. And they're no much more happier. And it's sort of really, in some ways, you know, that's the, that's the best innocence know, losing that I've ever lost. Because that materialism, I guess... This page, which is quite ironic because, you know, you sell yourself for money and you say you're not materialistic, but um, it's, yeah. Okay, so want to tell us some stories? I'll tell you some stories. I've already got two. I'll just tell you just two. There was two clients, I think, that do stand out. There's a lot of stories, but um, the first, we called him the Lion Tamer. He was a regular of mine um, in Brisbane. And he was a little bit fucking nuts, I'm going to sort of put it that way. But he had decided that he decided he, he ran his own religion, all right? And it was very much about channeling God through sex, through wild cats, through lions. So he would come in and he'd bring in this faux fur, tiger-striped rug, and he'd get you to get on all fours and he'd pop this rug over you and you had to become this queen, goddess, lion, tiger thing. And I had a name for it, I can't remember what it was called, but it was some sort of story thing he'd made up. And he would literally from behind and he'd go, all right, off we go. And you'd have to make tiger noise. And you'd have to literally make these noises the entire time. Be like, oh, goddess, I'm riding you through the forest. 
we are about to leap over the fence and we're about to enter the deep cave. Then we will make our sacrifice. And he would just be narrating this really bizarre um, incident or this really bizarre story or this fantasy in his head. And you're he's sitting there on all fours. So, so is he having sex with you at this yeah. point? Yeah, and he's all fours and he's trying to channel, for some reason, his sexual energy into this tiger goddess that he's invented in his own mind. And you'd be sitting there going, oh, fuck, I wish I was just, you know, I'm going to do the fucking shopping tomorrow. I'm going to buy eggs. I'm going to fucking buy milk. And here you are, you know, and you'd just be making these noises and you just go, oh, shit, I haven't grown for a while or I haven't made this tiger noise. You'd just be like, you'd let out this sort of, you know, bad tiger noise every now and then. you go, oh, yeah, that's it. You're talking to me, aren't you, goddess? And and it would go on, carry on for about 20 minutes and then he'd come and then he'd just clean up all his stuff and he'd just box out the room. And I was thinking... What a strange man. Like, and he'd just come in every now and then and he'd want to do his prayer, sacrificial tiger. Wow. It was really quite bizarre. Wow. I remember one one guy, which, it, you know, perfectly honest, for, for a lot of men, it's a very common request is a lot of men want anal stimulation because they hear about it, you know, they don't want to ask their wives. It's, it's all very taboo with the whole gay thing and whatnot. And I had this very big DJ, and I was in Australia, and he'd travel and he'd come up, and he'd always ring up and he'd be absolutely off his face on drugs. Like, you know, had pills or speed or whatever. So he'd answer his door and it was like one of those really bad movies where they had all the cameras set up. So he'd have these little cameras and he'd be checking his cops and just completely paranoid of his brain. So he'd go inside. you oh, God, here we go again. So he'd, and he'd always, he'd, and he must have been his delusions or his paranoia to decide to stash all his money in his records. And I'm talking records, in fact, get about 2,000 in crates all over his house. I can never actually remember what record he stashed his money in. So the booking would start with him being half an hour going through every single record in his record collection, trying to find these massive stashes of cash that he'd hidden away. So once he got his money together, you get it together, and and then suddenly he wanted you, Zena, I think it was a name, he wanted to become Zena with a massive strap on and doing it up the arse. Which was hard for me because I always fucking find it hilarious when I get somebody up the ass with a strap on. I always used to get the giggles and I was really, <laughs> I was always really bad at being a dominatrix because I remember I was a dominatrix and I was trying to kick the, this guy trying to kick the shit out of him and I was kicking him and I kept stopping going, oh, you okay? He goes, no, you can't keep doing that. <laughs> but you know, so, and, and that bruise up and the and, and you go, oh, this is abuse. I'm going to get fined or I'm going to get in trouble. The police are going to come. But anyway, he would, um, he loved it. And then, you know, half an hour later, he decided that he wanted to bring the transsexuals around and then it would start. So we'd have to go through the paper and we'd ring up and we'd probably get about two or three transsexuals around to his room. And, you know, like, it's the night, you know, they, they were actually, they were pretty good trade. So we could only get one male prostitute and transsexuals. So both of them arrived. I was chatting to, or call him Pete, because I don't remember his name right now. I was chatting to Pete about being a male escort because he does male, male to male and male to female. And that's another story in itself about, you know, Blokes and their hygiene issues, but um, and so anyway, he and this other male would just start having you know full on gay sex in front of me. So I'd just be sitting there or whatever, and then he'd sort of want me to join in and then do him up the ass as well, which was always, always a bit strange. And the transsexual would arrive, so it was this really bizarre mismatch, foursome of you know me who you know I was you know that about this this Asian you know transsexual with implants with a dick with a blonde wig that you know always looked like something out of you know cereal box and then there was always this male escort and then there was him yeah absolutely off his tits you know doing whatnot and there was me and it would just always end up in this most crazy concoction of positions and discussions and whatnot to the point where he would just 
actually, you just fall asleep by the end of it. So we'd all just go, oh, yeah, have a great night. You know, what are you up to tonight? Want to go for a drink? So more often than not, we'd always end up at the pub. So I'd be sitting at this pub with this, you know, Asian transsexual classical <laughs> me. We're just having a few beers, so discussing the, the nice of the industry. The, the three professionals. The talk, three professionals. Yeah, yeah, talking about and, the, the... you know, you'd get the interaction. And, yeah, and you'd get those sort of people back and forth. And I still remember this one guy, and it was... And it always to hit home. I always felt sorry for him. About, you know... Men that have those rape fantasies that obviously can't, you know, be rapist in real life. They've got no... And he'd come in and he was this short bloke. And I reckon he was probably, if he was lucky, he was five foot two. And and um, he, he he'd always hired two girls. One girl to watch the rape and one girl to, you know, go through it. So I'd always be the hot she. So he'd, he'd get on the girl that was, was good at doing BDSM stuff. Because a little girl specialised in that. They're much better at doing that. Um, so obviously, you know, you don't know somebody, you've just been tied up and these issues have been gagged and whatnot. You, know, you can't speak out. You've got to be very careful with how you handle the situation. And so because he wanted to gag and tie up, he always pay for an extra girl to watch. And so there was this little bloke, about five foot two, and I always remember, and he'd always choose this Amazon woman that was an ex-wrestler or an ex-bodybuilder outside of work. And anyway, he'd tie her up and he'd gag her and he'd start going at it. And he'd probably last about, about two seconds. But it was just, it was a little bit sad. It was it was the most bizarre, it felt like watching a sort of midget giant coupling. It was sort of the most bizarre thing. And you just look at it and you go, oh, my God, I know all these, you know, rapist stereotypes come from guys that can't actually. And this is what it's like for a two-metre person to be with. They're yeah. always there. Always the exception to the rule. So more often than not, you get more normal people than you do freaks. How much do you need to emotionally protect Detach? yourself? To an extent, I, I think, I don't, it's not... No, it's not a conscious thing. To be honest, like when you start working, you know, you sort of obsess about it. It goes through your head and what have I done? And it's all so hyper real. It's just, it's it's very surreal. It's you know, the world becomes. It's like you're almost manic. Your world becomes so bold and bright, and you can hear every sound and touch everything. And there's this incredible amount of emotional intensity. And then you learn that you know it wears you out. You can't connect deeply with everybody you meet because you know. You have like eight or nine clients a night if you have a really busy night. And, you know, it's an incredible amount of emotional thing. And then so you're just like drained. But you find over time, I think you just, I don't know, you naturally develop it. You know, it's there's a natural strength and that sort of arises. And you learn to switch off from those that aren't worth taking from. I think it's more, it's not let, not letting the people into you. It's more what you give to them in a sense and whether it's worth giving. I mean, I, I, and I've learned over time that actually the more you give, the more you can take back. It's That's natural. That's life. That's love. That's people and friendships. And it's not, a, it's not a conscious memory thing. Like I, you know, I always struggle to go back over all the clients I've had. I struggle to go back over, you know, most recent, one and a half years ago. You know, you don't remember the memory clients, the crazy stories or... Um, the interesting people, the people that you actually connected with. You know, it's going to be a lot of, you know... Do you think you would have ended up barren, dry, eventually, if you had stayed in the game long enough, that you would have eventually had to protect yourself so much emotionally that you would have become disconnected? No. I actually think the biggest thing, the biggest mental issue with sex workers today in our society is not their attitudes to work. It is the rest of society's attitudes to what they do. The biggest... Most debilitating thing is not to be able to be open and honest about what you do and proud of it. I mean, I am, I'm proud of it. Like I know people look at that in a strange way, but 
I have done no wrong. I've not hurt anybody. And, you know, people would argue that I've hurt myself. But, you know, if I go to work with compassion and empathy and incredible love for what I do and get enjoyment and pleasure out of it and give pleasure and enjoyment and empathy back to somebody, then who has the right to degrade me for what I've done? That took a long time to develop, though, and a lot of that self-strength. But, you know, a lot of women, they can't tell their families, they can't tell their parents, they can't tell the people they care about the most what they're doing. And hence, they can't get that support back. They can't really get... They have they, they splinter themselves. They splinter their psyche, you know, their grace, and then their, their you know, other selves. And, you know, trying to... Anybody that's splintered or anybody that's cut in half can't really be happy, can't really find fulfillment because... You're, you're two people, you know, you have no... You're not whole. You're not whole. You have no synergies. As a society, people have unfair judgments, I guess, and hence um, it, it encourages people that are dysfunctional, that are, do have drug addicts, do have this and that, rather than, you know, beautiful women that are incredibly sexual, that would absolutely love caring and giving and loving and making this, you know, actually the most brilliant prostitutes in the world from doing it because they think oh crap you know it's the worst job in the world but they would actually be the best at it and get the most fulfillment and even the most money and most success out of it as well and you just keep encouraging more on people that's the cycle that just keeps repeating so but you yeah. described having to be a somewhat mm-hmm. detached but still mm-hmm. empathetic and all yeah. that sort of stuff was sometimes it outrageously good and was sort of oh, like yeah. my god I'm getting paid for having oh, this yeah. much fun I, I had an absolute ball the whole time too. like you'd have your good days and your bad days you didn't want to go to work and look the bad days increased especially if you were seeing somebody that you had emotional attachment with and you missed that long term that you know because it was you know a lot of different people you know your regulars and whatnot but you missed the familiarity of somebody's body and the intimacy that comes with that and the knowledge and the vulnerability that you encourage within a relationship so when you have that and then you go to work, it's it's very difficult to try and, you know, it, it works as worse. But, you know, if you're single and you're free and you're happy, you know, it's an absolute fucking ball. You know, you miss it. You It's the lifestyle. It's an incredible amount of freedom. And I know people think, oh, you know, you're trapped in the industry. You, know, you don't, this and this. In some ways, you know, I can go, you know, I want to go to overseas. I want to go to Japan in three weeks. You know, you just work five or six days. You've got your flight. You've got your wages, your holiday. You're off for four weeks. Off, go off and join another country, you know, you and you can, you can drop in and out and in and out of the industry as often as you want. And what, what is the rate? The rate is in Queensland, it is about 2.30 an hour, 2.30 to 2.40 an hour, 180 for about half, 45 minutes, and I think about 150 for half an hour. Okay. So usually girls get half, so about $75 for half an hour, you know, $190 for 45 minutes, I think it's about 115 for an hour. So as part of that, they obviously get the place, the advertising. And, the then, the, and then the extras on top. The extras on top. So things like kissing, fingering, um, oral on the girl, obviously everything's protected sex and dental dams and whatnot, um, anal sex, fantasies. Um, oh, usually between about 50 to $100 extra per extra. Anal usually starts from probably between about 200 to about $500, depending on the girl and whether or not she offers it. Obviously, it's not the most common service in the industry. Mm. Have you given away freebies? No, oh, no, you know, yes. There has been times where, not the whole look, the boodle, but there's been a time where I've met a guy and I'm just really clicked with him and he's been, you know, good looking and we've just both really mm. clicked. 
and suddenly I actually want to kiss him with my own cord. You know, I want, you know, I'd love for him to go down on me. You know, that's part of it. But more often than not, no. Okay. You know? um, Have you ever earned outrageous amounts? Yes. One time I earned twelve thousand dollars for a weekend that wasn't too bad that was look and he's it was a per hour basis we probably got a little bit cheap but no, you would have got paid for sleeping during part of that I oh yeah look it was great look there was a massive yacht there was uh, a gentleman and two of his business clients there was three of us girls and we had the most incredible thing we had a chef on board amazing yacht we just sailed around the waters we swam we snorkeled we entertained. There's probably about four hours total sex the entire weekend. We got $12,000. He got his business deal. It was done. And, you know, it was all... It was a business expense probably for him anyway. Yeah, exactly. So, and and that's good. It's good and easy money. And then other times where, you know, you can make two, three, four grand a night. I used to do couples. Couples are very good money as well. We had a lot of couples come through brothels and even privately. Husband, wife. Husband, sits. wife, um, girlfriend, boyfriend, where... They swingers parties are a bit too fond for them, you know. They don't really want to go into a group of people, um, and especially when the girl. And I'd actually advocate against swingers and finding people online is the fact that, you know, you know she's there to work. She may be good looking. She may love what she's doing. She may engage with the female as well. But he goes home. You find a lot of the a lot of the men find it very difficult to not want to go back to the honeypot case the first time. A lot of guys come back even through my perfect experience, even through, you know, having threesomes and. You know, be involved in that sort of couples and that sort of thing as well, is that the men have a tendency to email you, to text you, to try and keep buying their girlfriends back, keep it going, let's keep it up by ourselves. You know, there's that that need there. And whereas, you know, you know, you're going to see this girl, you're going to have a great time, you're going to leave. She's going home, she, it's work, she doesn't really give a shit, you're not going to want to contact her, you don't even know her real name. And so for them, there's a lot more security in the fact that it was very much our experience, not necessarily something that he can try and revisit without me. You know? Do sometimes the ladies want to check out whether their sexuality? Oh, yeah, very whole, much so. Curious oh, yeah, very much so. Look, we, they come in. Look, I, I had a few rules that I wouldn't do a couple's booking if I was actually attracted to the girl. And if I you said, were attracted? If I weren't. Oh, I, said, okay. I said to her, I said, look, if I'm not attracted to you, it's going to be a very false experience and you're going to pick up on that very easily. Um, and you're going to leave this very dissatisfied and very unhappy with what you've experienced. And in the long term, we're going to do more damage to you than it will in the short term to look for the boys. So I said, look... I find a lot of women come through because it's very much the part, the, the man's idea. You know, he's always one of the threes and he's always, you know, a few drinks into them, maybe even a few ecstasy pills. You know, they're a little bit ramped up. It's a good thing to do. So we have, I sit them down, I just talk them through. I say, look, this is very clear rule. I said, I go on what the girl says, not what the gentleman says. Pretty much, I said, we have our, obviously, a bit like BDSM, we have our safe words. I say, look, if there's, you know, whether it be banana or yellow or orange, whatever, I say, look, if you want me to slow down, please let me know because I don't have to be, you know, I can step back and watch you two, see how it goes. I tend to focus more on the girl than I do the gentleman and let him come in when she, you know, naturally you can tell from body language she's ready for him to join in. You have to realise, especially with couples that, unlike, you know, just a man and a girl, you know, in the booking, you are not in there to really get pleasure. Like, I mean, if it's in there, it's a bonus, but it's their relationship, that's their long term, that's their life, that's, you know, very much who they are and their happiness outside of this. And I, I even for my own pleasure, even for an hour or so, I have no right to come in and desecrate relationship or step over those boundaries or... So you're, think, you're, you're behaving very much like a therapist there. You do. You have to. You, But that's what you learn to develop. You know, you have to learn to just few situations. You get a lot of drunken men come through that can get very aggressive, can get... You have to learn to diffuse them and put them in a point. You have to learn... Um, a lot of people that are psychotic pretty fucked up, put it that way. Um, you know, I've had a lot of men through that come through and they say, look, I 
have to tell someone I don't know what to do. I've got this daughter. I want to touch her. I think about touching her all the time. And you get a lot of people that have those pedophilic tendencies and you have to try and diffuse that. And and I guess sometimes we, I had, we used to used to look through that had rape fantasies, pedophilic fantasies, and that. And a lot of the women just sort of absorb it. And that can be very emotionally draining to the women. But, you know, and I, and so that's where I guess it's almost like psychological blackmail where you'd be careful that – and there's that worry comes in, you know, if, if you don't see this person or they don't see this person, what are they going to do with their daughter if they don't, you know, and you talk them through it, through them, you know, why are they doing this? Is there a way you can alleviate this? You know, and it's um, – you do get a very um, strong knowledge of human psychology, like people work, especially sexually, and how sexuality affects a lot of people in very different ways. Um, and do you have to? Um, is confidence sacrosanct? Is it like being yes. a priest? Yes. Or do you also have a responsibility to the greater community if they tell you something in confidence that you say, "Sorry, mate, listen, I'm going to have to phone the, the police is, about this." One. The problem is we can't. Like, it's not like we, you know, you come in, you know, you may say, "I'm Ian." You may decide your name is Bob this morning. You want to go see your girl? You know, all I have known you is as Bob. You don't even know me as Grace. We don't know each other's real name. You may tell me you're a truck driver. You may be an actually be a lawyer. You know, there's only a certain amount of truth I can actually go, you know, this probably made me, you know, the 100% dinky die, what it's actually saying. So, you know, if I decided to go chase Bob, where would I start? You know, how many Bobs are there in Queensland? So do you ever hear of things that are really bad, really yeah. illegal, things that, you know, you should maybe even call the police about? You, you do, but there's, there's an element of do I, you know, and especially if you're in a room with somebody talking about it, you can't, you know, even the showers, the toilets in the rooms, if they want to go to have a shower or whatever, they can have a shower in the room and, so I can't actually rustle through his pants and find his wallet, pull out his ID, write it down and call the cops. And even then, you know, I call the cops and go, all right, yeah, this is Bob. I found his ID, you know, illegally over through his wallet, taking his ID, wrote it all down. I'm actually a prostitute. I've had this client, you know, more often than not, you're probably going to be laughed, not laughed at, but you're going to be dismissed. And then they'll be them, they go, well, we have no proof. We can't just mm. invade someone's house or invade someone's life, these allegations, if they're not true. So, you know, there's that impotence which can be as frustrating and can be as upsetting as well then and but that's you know you have to take on the shoulder it's sort of part of the work and the best you can do is try and drive them the other way or try and show them that there are other options available and that's not the quiet you know do you, do you feel that the sex industry does a great service for society yeah it does it can yes do you think it harms society, as the Christian right fragment sake would say? I think it can do harm. It can... It, it's, it's, I think society does more harm the L industry from actually being something healthy, not wholesome, but healthy and... Not, not, um, something healthy and functional and as free as it can be of drugs and you know, people acting out of you know, um, sexual dysfunction and people are coming in there for the wrong reasons and the wrong drugs you know society hinders the ability of our industry to actually be something that can be constructive and can be a very much brilliant voice and a brilliant vessel for release and a lot of you know expression in the community but at the same time the adult industry it's kind of that, that dodgy cycle again where the adult industry because it does inhabit those factors you know you're not going to get that mainstream except you're not going to get that mainstream encouragement or even degree of support that so you just because you don't have that then you get the cycle again it just goes round and round and round and round so, 
So what's it like having relationships, personal um, relationships? Here you are going yeah. to work and you've mm-hmm. got these very intimate work relationships. Mm-hmm. What's it like having personal romantic relationships outside? Very difficult. I've never actually worked for a long period and had a relationship. I've worked at the start of a relationship for about one or two months into the relationship and then quit. But I personally couldn't do it. That's not... I'm very much naturally a monogamous person um, and even... So if, when you come into a relationship, you feel... Yes, I need to leave. Look, I just couldn't do it. I'd, I have that... What about him? He, oh, I'm assuming oh, he. Yeah, yeah. Um, he... Well, he um, I had a few boyfriends that had been with me during the industry. And were they able to deal with it? No, most men can't, really. You know, you can educate them and show them enough. It's, it's sort of that double-edged sword, you know. You can teach them about it and this is what we actually do. This is really how disconnected we are. But at the same time, they know so much, so... You know, it's, it's almost too much of the information overload. If not really what they wanted, <laughs> they'd rather just imagine that you're off, you know, just doing being a checkout chick. Than can they? Do they feel threatened by it, or do they yeah, look, just see it as well? Listen, look, this you know, is sacred for me only. No, look, they do feel very threatened, and even the whole time of the relationship, it will continue on. It's simply the fact that I mean, especially being my age, and I can probably estimate roughly they've had thousands of people and thousands of thousands, which is a huge amount for anyone at any point in their lifetime let alone being 21 you know you've got that there's for them there's you know not just your usual you know oh, oh i've had a boyfriend here and there and you know, the usual 10 15 guys you know you've got 2,000 men to stand up to and measure up to so it takes a very strong man it mm-hmm. takes a very open-minded person as well but there's two sides to it you can have somebody that accepts the industry but at the same time you tend to find People will accept that because it's viewed as very much a fault. It's, it's as or as a wrongdoing, or they may have other faults to compensate for your fault or their perceived faults. They may go, okay, that's great, but I've got drug addiction, so I'll let you have your prostitution. Or, you know, I've got, I'm an alcoholic, or you know, I want to do this, this, and this, and you know, and they and they weigh it up and they use that against you. Or you may have people that are completely against it, but you know, there's a lot of fighting, there's a lot of a lot of anger and fear and frustration because you know you don't you are and it is very much i am a very different person as being grace out working than i am in normal day-to-day life i and that's hence why i miss it. i miss her i miss and that's splintering again but i miss i there's other things i could do as her that it's not always you know going on stage being an actor being a performer you know i could do as her and the amount of confidence and it's like well you know i'm not I, you know and you're trying it with them and so you like very this, much play a role. Yeah, very much so. I, I feel stripped. I feel very vulnerable under the pardon because it's like, oh, you know, I used to be a stripper as well. I danced after I started doing sort of prostitution. Um, I still went backwards, actually. I could dance really well on stage. I could do all this. And then I'd try to lap dance and hold my boyfriend and I can't even stand up straight. Like, it's that much nervousness and that much because you are very much who you are. And there's that... You're the real who you are. Yes. Um, and, you know, you're not quite, you know, it's... it's that so is there something that you say for your partner that no client ever sees? Uh, orgasms. Oh, okay. Well, I wasn't being physiological. Oh, okay, I was being yeah. emotional. Um, emotional. But, oh, yeah. There's a huge amount of emotional and a lot of private stuff as well. But physically as well, you know, for me, um, it was my it's my pleasure. Like, I would still get myself off in a booking, but... For someone to give me an orgasm, that's what I like to do with a huge amount of trust and a huge amount of... So you wouldn't climax with no. a client? I'd get myself off, put it that way. Like, I'd, you know, he'd, we'd, we'd finish, I'd 
have an orgasm excited so I'd be too pent up and yeah. you know, I'd do it. But after he's left? Oh no, even while he was there I was like, Oh forget it. But it was very much, you know it's and that's where sometimes a damage has been done. But for me, sex isn't about the orgasm. It's it's split very much so. And I guess that's pretty much due to the way yeah, it's not for me sex and orgasm is a completely different thing. I know that sounds quite strange, but for me, sex is the game, it's the fantasy, it's the role play, it's the chase, it's the hunt, it's the work, it's sensuality, it's, it's the intellectual, I mean, it's very sad for a female as well, the intellectual uh, connection, it's the spontaneity, it's the random, it's it's the fetish, it's, that's sex, you know, and the orgasm for me is just a very basic, pure release of emotion, and that's something very private for me, so that's something I'd always you know, they, it's it's nothing so. So strange. the orgasm, as you call it, is yes. the connection to your special Self. person. Yeah, it's a connection to myself. Self, it's okay, not... and you'll only share that with a special person. Yes. So whereas for me, and a client never gets that. No, because that's for me outside of yeah, outside of work. So that's why it's it, it's very yeah. It's it's I guess it's like anything you, you listen to porn documentaries, anything like that. That very similar split where you know it's very much. You're addicted to sex, but sex isn't about the orgasm, so it's you know, which never really is in the day. But yeah, it's it's yeah, it's strange. It's and there has to be there has to be something. I think possible. a lot. I think a lot of people could relate to what you're yes. talking about. And look, one of the track I'd love to amalgamate the two, but that's like I said, you, that's a very that's a private journey of mine that mm. will sort of carry that on to. So well, we've been through a whirlwind of things <laughs> back and forth, and yeah, There's sorry. so much stuff, Grace. Where are you at now? Why did you leave the industry? Okay, I think because of my partner or my um, recently ex-partner, very recently actually, and basically he came from the very sort of well-off background. He, he didn't understand it, but he, I met him. I, I was very upfront actually when I first met him. I said, look, this is what I do. Did you meet him outside of work? I did. I met him at a bar and I was actually, I don't know, I think I might have had a few drinks. I said, look, this is what I do. And for him, it was very much a game. I was going to hook her into bed, you know, free sex and he fell in love with me and I sort of fell in love with him. So it sort of developed and, and I you, was working. you stopped working? No, I, I was working for about two months afterwards. Uh, it was very hard for him because uh, he comes from a very Catholic background and it was completely alien to him, you know, and he's come from very much that real, you know, boys will be boys, private boys school, you know, let's be real men, da, da, da. and then suddenly having the first time in his life to really care about someone and then watch her go to work and then, you know, come home and bags under his eyes and you know until he'd been crying and knowing that you know i've had eight, eight men here i am i'm back here and, and it's and it took me a very long time and i've got to give him a lot of credit because he has been he has definitely made the effort to try and change his way of thinking way of understanding of the industry and the work and i but i made the choice that you know i want to go back into studying back into you know feeding my mind again and did and he ever? Did he come? Ever go and see your work? No, he didn't. Okay. And I don't think he dropped me off once, and even that was even hard for me. Like it's, it's not something that I think you need to shove in people's face. But you, you, I, you, I was you, wondering yeah. if he was curious. Yeah, yeah. look, I, and I think if people have that too much like curiosity, and that's sometimes almost wrong as well. There's almost a, a period where you know I go to work, you know, you need to time away, and um, but yeah, he, he he did very well in yeah supporting me and. You know, and very much in his eyes, which I was sort of rebelled against because I believe I'm more than... But he, he had very much thing, you know, you're more than this and you're more than that. And I find it a little bit condescending, so I sort of bucked up against that. But he has been very 
brilliant motivating me and and it's been very good for me to get back into studying get back into a brilliant career and earning good money again and have something else and I, I do that I jump off I go to work and then I come back and I sort of I'm always two steps ahead anyway so I'm just luck of the Irish but so that's why you left the industry yes if in a period of time mm-hmm. would you go back or is it a bridge I, that's burnt no I want to oh I, I, I would but I made a promise to my family that I would Okay. So I wouldn't. Okay. And it's tempting, and sometimes literally I can climb the walls and go, oh, God, I'd love to work again. And not for the money, I just love to work again. But I, you know, I've been finding brilliant success in what I'm doing now anyway, apart from in a different industry and just a normal job. And, you know, I think I, you know, rather than, you know, I have the opportunity to open to myself to, you know, let's go travel, let's go explore opportunities, and then at least then help on the track, you know, if I want to come back. I still can't, I promise. But, um, you know, I owe it to myself to go and explore those opportunities, explore those avenues and travel and do all that, which I still can do while I'm working. But, you know, this is a different path now and I'm ready to explore more the non-sexual side of myself. So, Society has a lot of judgment mm-hmm. of this yeah. as a career path. You know, mm-hmm. it's been around since the dawn of time, mm-hmm. but still there is this attitude. Yeah. What would you say? People, I think ultimately, you know, apart from everything people associate with drugs and what's well, bad stuff with the industry, which does exist in bad terms, but I think people ultimately fear the industry because they fear themselves. Sexuality is an incredible expression of who we truly are. Um, and in our dysfunction, you know, times and in our functional times and, you know, what we do not like and what we do like and how open we are. Um, it's it's an incredible tool in some ways for healing. Um, and I think people look at the industry as though it's very pleasure-orientated, but ignore the fact that the majority of it is very much a lot of people trying to express and heal themselves in a very natural and in quite a compassionate way. There are a lot of people out there that have sexual dysfunction that look for people to try and help them, that therapists can't help them, their friends can't help them, and, you know, they're alienated and they feel so alone. And yet, you know, for once, they find somewhere, they find some sort of balance. You know, people are passive, you know, on the outside world, but you find they can actually turn to dominatrixes in the bedrooms, you know. Great lawyers and politicians become so passive in the bedroom because they need that loss of control of power. And I think um it's incredibly underestimated um at the role possibly the sex district could provide in a therapeutic healing aspect you know once if you legalize it if you get the right people into it and you know it's we all love to be touched humans love touch humans love interaction compassion and you know, for all that's happening you know it is one of the last industries left where you know you don't hug a client you don't need a new person start touching them it's one of the very few last vestiges of actual human interaction left we all chat on the internet we all chat by phone or type or text and um yeah there's an incredible amount of potential change and the healing exists in finally people had the courage to change their viewpoints and their judgments on the industry so 
Grace, thanks very much. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for coming on You're and sharing welcome. all this information with us. It's, yep. um, it's a wild journey. <laughs> yeah, and, okay. uh, you certainly can talk. <laughs> yeah, again, thank you. Sorry. Thanks very much. You're very welcome. Thank you, Ian. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.